It may be that very few people have ever heard a message from Isaiah chapter 21. And um, this will be the second time I've done this. The last time was the year 2010. And um, we were walking slowly through Isaiah. I think we were probably in the third year or the second year of the book of Isaiah by the time we got to chapter 21. We're going much quicker, much more quickly this time. And uh, we're going to finish. And so I would ask you to turn to Psalm 1. How would we do that? Well, the thing is, Psalms is right almost in the middle of your Bible. So you just kind of open it to the middle and you have to allow if your Bible has a bunch of reference stuff in the back. So let me show you my reference stuff. Yeah. So this is the end of my Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen is how uh, uh, John concludes Revelation 22 verse 21. And that's right there. So what's left is my actual Bible, and it's right in the middle. And if you turn to the middle of your Bible, you might get Job, you might get Proverbs. If you get Job, keep going to the Psalms. If you get Proverbs, go back one. And Psalm 1, which says, How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And I want you to notice the comparison of the person of wisdom who is happy, his state of being, his contentment in life, as opposed to the avoidance of the behaviors of those that are fools, the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. These are all moral, moral categories, but they're all under the, the, the heading and wisdom of folly because they're a rejection of God and the fear of God. And, and notice that it's, it's the joy that you're going for in Psalm 1. How happy is the man. The word translated blessed in my English Bible here would be better rendered happy because the word ashray in Hebrew refers to a state of one's existence. And you could say, well, I'm in a blessed state, but in what sense? He's brought you his joy. It's what David talks about in Psalm 51 about the joy of his salvation. Not the same word, but the same idea. The state that you want, what we really want in life is this bliss that God desires to give us. And one way we know we can have it is to avoid the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinners, the seed of scoffers. And here's the alternative. His delight, compared with happiness, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Torah meaning instruction. Whatever God has to say through his special revelation and the beginning of the Word of God in His Torah is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we call that the books of the Torah, God's instruction for Israel. We also call it the law. But the, the root concept in the law is His instruction. And this is what He is delighting in. And in His law, He meditates day and night. A daily focus on God's Word and a consequent meditation on it. It makes me think of like a cow. The way God designed the cow to digest, he works on it all day. He takes his grass, but then he works on it. He works on it. You've got your intensive time of intake, but then you're thinking about it. We could even say ruminating, okay, on what we're thinking, on what God's Word has to say. And this is an intensive moment where we're going to take in a meal in God's Word, then we're going to reflect on that. We're going to think on that. There is a consequence for this meditation. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. And you want to be that tree firmly planted with fruit that comes in season, and your leaf is strong because you're a healthy tree in the metaphor of a tree. You don't want to be the ash tree today with the blight that's killing all the ash trees. Or down where I'm from, the elm trees all died 20 years ago because the, because the elm blight. You want to be that tree that's healthy, that's firm, that's, that's planted because near, near running water, so healthy from all the nutrients it gets. But then the writer, perhaps David, says, Not so the wicked, they shall be like the chaff which the wind drives away. You couldn't get a, a stronger contrast from a tree 
It's firmly planted with a deep taproot system that's drawing all that nutrients out of the ground to chaff. It's the thing that you've chopped down some wheat and it's the junk that's left after you get the wheat berries out of it. It's the just, just trash. The wicked are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's the two ways. It's a major theme we have in the Bible. The two ways of life, wisdom and folly. And wisdom is to go God's way and folly is to say no to God's way. And it's really, really simple. So let me illustrate. You have in this little chart that I made 12 years ago for you. We haven't looked at it since. You have what you want. God's offer, man's substitute for God's offer, and what you get. Can you go with me on that? And it's the two ways. You want happiness, Psalm 1, 1, how happy is the man. Proverbs 8, happy is the man who listens to wisdom. Proverbs 8, 32. What man substitutes for God's offer of meditation on his word, walk in his ways, to love God and have a relationship with Him. What man substitutes is folly and wickedness and foolishness. And there is a moral connection. There's a connection between what is right and whether or not you pay attention to God's Word. There's a, there's a tight connection. And what you get, if you're the chaff, that, don't, that you can't stand up in the assembly of the righteous, if you don't stand under the judgment, what you get is misery. And that's what folly gets you. And these are the two ways. And there's temporal misery, and the discipline God brings to His children is a cause, often, of temporal, time-in-time misery that you might be experiencing even now. And we all do from time to time. But there's eternal misery. And it's interesting how wisdom and folly work this way. It's one or the other. And I love you. Every one of you. I want you to have the happiness. I want you to have what God wants to give you. And I'm more and more convinced every time I spend time, every, every study session I have in the Word, I become more convinced, and I pray that you do too, that there's only one way to get the happiness that you're designed for. All right, so let's break down our chart. What you want is security, and that's what God is offering you. But what you get if you go with man's substitute is insecurity. What you want is love, what you end up with in yourself without the work of God in you, is selfishness. And let's talk about marital problems. Let's talk about problems between parents and children. Let's talk about the hard things in life in the household. And in the Bible, household uh, teaching goes straight to work. We've got to break a big division between household and work, unless we're on the farm. But in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, household was where work was done. And so talking about employer-employee relationships, um, you want to have happiness, you want love, you want the good things in life like love, and you end up with selfishness if you run down Folly's Road. The selfish husband is looking at what he can get from his wife, what she can do for him, what she can provide for him, and he ends up with a miserable life, even if she's a doting wife, even if she's the kind of wife that wants to serve and help and, and cares for him and loves him and wants to provide. He's still miserable because he's not made to be served. He's made to be a servant leader. And our design is that we're happiest when we're doing, we're fulfilling our function. And so this is a great example. Love, well, you want love, but you end up with misery, even if you think, if you have what you think you wanted. We want significance in life. One of the great things that the philosophers of psychology have come up with is significance, valence, a real sense of purpose, right? I believe Lucy told Charlie Brown, you need involvement. <laughs> um, we want significance. We want our life to matter. And according to the, all the wisdom literature in the Bible, we end up with nothing more than temporary notoriety. You get nothing more than they might, they, whoever they are, might know who you are uh, for just a little while. And then it doesn't matter. All the monuments, have you ever been to the museum? You know, you go to the museum and there's this picture, this, this, you know, whatever artifact, and there's this write-up on it. And you're like, okay, so I have to learn a lot of context for this artifact that meant a lot to somebody at some point to make any difference to me at all. 
I've got to study this, and most people aren't going to, and uh, history nerds will kind of spend a little time and, and get to know this thing, but it, for the most part, they, who all thought you were really important back then, don't even know who you are. And they won't know who you are, and they won't care, and this life's a vapor, and that's what wisdom will teach you, is that if you want significance in life, but you won't go through God's way of getting it, you'll end up with temporary notoriety at very best. He who dies with the most toys wins. Is, uh, <laughs> is, is, I would challenge you not to let your life be an experiment to see if that's true. What about money? Everybody wants money. James has a word for money. The whole Bible has a word for money. Money's not evil, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, Jesus said. You can't serve wisdom, or you can't serve mammon and God. You can't serve God and wealth. But you want money. James says you don't have because you don't ask. And if you do ask, you ask for with wrong motives. You want to spit it on your pleasures, <laughs> he says, because you're, focused, you're not on a mission. You're not, you're not praying in accord with God's will for your life because you're focused on you and, and something that you want instead of God and what does God want for you. And so you want money. And there is prosperity and there is provision and there is seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But not the health and wealth gospel. But you want resources, you want capability, you want just some security and some, a break from that constant sense of need. But if you go down Folly's path, you might get temporary wealth, but you won't have eternal wealth. And so do the math. Infinite existence, infinite time, if you will, of existence or an eternal existence or temporary wealth. At what point in our lives do we need to do that math? We teach the kids mathematics. They know how to do lesser than and greater than early on. At what point do we do that calculation and say, I'm with Jesus. I'm seeking first the kingdom. I want to have eternal wealth. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. Stuff. Temporary stuff. Ooh. I just want everybody to like me. I just want other people to think highly of me. Well, maybe you'll get some acknowledgement from people occasionally. Maybe you'll get a little of that. But it, again, it's passing, and it's, it's all a waste if that's all we're after. Don't you want to know what's behind the elevator doors? We want health. Well, we're all going to have failing health in some way at some point. We want life. The, the path of folly is death. And we want stimulation. And if you get your stimulation from other than the way God would have you, if you're using the various stimulants of life as avoidance mechanisms to get away from the truth that I need to engage with my Creator and walk with Him and talk to Him and spend time listening to His Word, if you go after these avoidance mechanisms, you get an anesthetic, uh, but you don't have really what you're after, and it doesn't satisfy. And the thing about anesthetics if I could use narcotics as an example, there's no greater anesthetic than narcotics, uh, I think, in medicine. I don't think there's a better way to deal with pain than narcotics. At least that's the way that our, our culture seems to be tending in the medical industry, industrial complex or whatever. That they know that if you're really going to deal with pain, um, except for some you know, um, cutting-edge, fringe, you know, future-of-medicine approaches where they do localized you know, care and stuff, they still are giving people narcotic medications, and people get addicted to them. And then, they, and, but it's because it's such a pain kill. It's so helpful with pain, and it has its place, obviously. But it's not a lifestyle. And the problem with, with the anesthetic, with the narcotic effect, is that it diminishes over time. You need more, and then you're okay. You get a little more, and then you need some more, and eventually it kills you. Because your body can't take as much as it would take you to receive the benefit of the anesthetic. So it's a temporary affair, right? And, and, that's, and I'm using the narcotic as an example. It's not wrong to take narcotic pain medication for something if you need it in, in the right sense. But it can become wrong. And uh, and our quest for stimulation quickly becomes death because we're not going for it God's way. And what's behind God's offer? Contentment, eternal contentment in a personal relationship with God. That 
is what life is about. And all those things on the left side of the column are all the details of life that have value in as much as they're connected to the eternal creator. And all those things, money, uh, what other people think of you, status, significance, all those things that people live their lives to serve are all things that God can arrange for you and will arrange for you if you're about His interests, if you're after Him. then And your attitude about these things becomes appropriate. You start thinking, I, don't, I, want, God to, I want God's approval. I want God's eternal approval on this temporal decision because that makes my decision matter eternally. Judgment seat of Christ. You see, and you start thinking in terms of the relationship you actually have with the God who is there. And the reason we don't have this is we don't trust Him. We're not availing ourselves of His words. We're not thinking of Him, and so we're not trusting Him. You see, He's not real to us because we're walking by faith, not by sight, but my sight is so full. And I don't feel like changing my perspective to hear from what God says. And so Psalm 1 and the way of wisdom really is super valuable. What's the alternative? All the things that you go after to try to satisfy the need that God has given you for himself. You try to fill your need for a relationship with God with human relationships. See, the problem is not the people. The problem is not the personal relationships. The problem is the lack of personal relationship with God. And then we abuse the personal relationships by trying to make them do something they're not designed to do. Human relationships, we're going to solve problems through government. So much of Isaiah is that we're going to use governmental human solutions, geopolitical solutions. We'll go after the Egyptians and get them to solve our Assyrian problem. We'll join together the Syrians and and Ephraimites to join together to make a military alliance. We're going to get the Babylonians who are starting to rise up against the Assyrians. No, they got smacked down too. We'll go after the, the people down in Cush, south of Egypt, the Egyptian Cush. We'll use them. And none of these are solutions to the problem that is besetting Israel in um, the 700s BC. The problem is that they're idolaters and God has raised up the Assyrians to spank them. And you can't fight God. Well, we're not fighting God, we're fighting the Assyrians. God is raising up the Assyrians and you need to think through what you're actually dealing with. That's so much of Isaiah chapters 13 through Um, 23. We have things that are coming up in our lives, events, fun things. I like to draw your attention back if you were a little kid that had the kind of upbringing where there was such a thing as a birthday party. Some people never heard of any such thing as little children, but if you had such a thing where there were special events for children where your parents doted on you a little bit and had a special, like it's your birthday, there's cake. Something to look forward to. So you're supposed to live your life on the basis of the birth of your Savior and His death for your sins and His resurrection. We're supposed to live our lives with that joy that this life is a banquet. I am living Psalm 23. He spreads a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I am living that way. But it's not because of events or special occasions in my life. It's because of what God has told me in His Word and the event that is history that I'm part of, that God has so ordained from eternity past in his sovereignty that I would live, I would exist, and I would walk with him. And I would know him on his terms and, and uh, be equipped to make decisions that please him. There's your event, your life, your existence. And Psalm 1 shows you, I think, that this is a huge application. What we're seeing is in terms of what you really want in life. What do you want? This is the chart of what do you want. And I enjoy looking at it, especially when we turn to Isaiah 21. Because Israel's looking for anything, the southern kingdom is looking for anything they can, Egypt and Cush and whoever, to solve their problem of the Assyrians. And every possible avenue is a dead end, according to Isaiah. The opening image in Isaiah 21 is the burden concerning the wilderness of the sea, likely a reference to the desert environs. Um, south of the, per- the Persian Gulf in Mesopotamia, big vast expanse of, of um, not desert, but, but wilderness that is fed by the two rivers, and it's this big expanse of land. Like the windstorms in the Negev that sweep over from the wilderness going from the land that is feared. So you have this image of, of, of storms and uh, powerful windstorms uh, coming from the land that is feared. And I've told you before, we spoke about this last Tuesday, or last Wednesday, this message is very vague by God's design, but it's a reference to Babylon. 
and the destruction of Babylon because we're, we're going through the next five, the first five in Isaiah 13 through 20, and then, and then the last five in 21 through 23. So we're back to Babylon. It's like a second lap. It says, a hard vision was uttered to me. A hard vision was uttered to me. The treacherous one is dealing treacherously. The destroyer is destroying. That's as much as you get about God's judgment on Babylon, is that they're treacherous and destructive. Go up, Elam, bind media. A lot of Isaiah's oracles may be fairly verbose. This oracle is actually pretty terse, pretty, pretty light on language and heavy on meaning. And what's happening here is there is this picture of treacherous and wicked and destroyer and God's answer to that in Elam and Media. Elam is the ancient word, an ancient name for Persia. And Media is the Medes. And you have the Medo-Persian alliance that with Cyrus and Darius took down the Babylonians. And the, the interesting thing about that is Isaiah's writing in the 700s BC and that took place in 539 BC. And he's prophesying something in part that's going to happen, part of which is going to happen 150 years from his time. This is one of the places where they'll say, if, if Isaiah is talking about the Medes and he's dealing with Babylon like he does in chapter 13 and 14, uh, chapter 14 mentions the Medes and Babylon, that's 539 B.C. Isaiah cannot be writing in the 700s, 730s and 720s. He can't be talking about something 150 years later if he doesn't know about it. And that's what academics do with uh, Isaiah. They say that the prophet of God, speaking God's word, word for word, oh wait, they don't believe that. That the prophet that is supposedly of God can't really know about the future. And you say, um, what did you just call him, a prophet? And he doesn't know because God can't tell him about the Medes? Back to the Bible with you. Go read 1 Samuel 16 and tell me what God can tell a prophet. Anything he wants. So no, this is a prophecy 150 years before of what would happen. 539 fulfills in part this, this event. It fulfills the Median Persian part. After her groaning, all her groaning, I will cause to stop all the groaning of those under the pressure of the Babylonians. And the question is, who is her? And it may be the, uh, the people in Judah because of the, the, the return to the land. On account of this, my loins are filled with trembling. And we don't know much about what Isaiah saw in this vision, but it's awful. And we do know what he said about Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. An utter, total destruction, a desolate waste. Nobody's going to live there but desert creatures. Something that has not yet fully been uh, taken place. And here's what I believe, and I'll tell you again. I think what's happening with the prophecies of Babylon, especially in Isaiah, is he's seeing um, in a two-dimensional frame what has a three-dimensional historical event. So he sees, like, he's looking at it this way, and he sees the Persians, and then he sees the utter destruction of Babylon after the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and he is seeing one event. He's seeing one judgment. But if you turned it sideways, you'd say, oh, there's, there's a, a series of things that's going to happen uh, across time. And so there's no point where this has been actually fulfilled in its entirety and this is what we're talking about here. See, what I'm saying is in 539 B.C., the Persians, the Medes and Persians were so powerful and so effective in their strategy that they were able to reduce the Babylonian um, uh, empire. Belshazzar, the story of Daniel and, uh, and the feast and the writing on the wall. They're able to reduce that uh, um, kingdom without really having much of a pitched battle. They have a very small skirmish that decapitates the Chaldean Empire and replaces uh, the, the authority over Babylon and, and the Mesopotamian region with the Medo-Persians. You don't have an utter destruction of the city of Babylon. And the historians will tell you that actually, Xenophon writes in the Cyropedia and others will tell you that there was a, largely a, a popular embrace of the new regime. It wasn't a civil war. There, it, was just, it, it was mostly a peaceful... Uh, we talked about last... <laughs> last year, mostly peaceful protests. Uh, there was, but there was a largely bloodless, it wasn't a pitched battle that resulted from a siege that, that killed everyone. And um, so, so this is where we get some dissonance with the history. What happened from our perspective in 539 that we know the Medes and Persians came 
doesn't account for what Isaiah says next. And that's why I say the visions of, of Babylon are not multiple fulfillments. It's multiple events that he's talking about in, co- in terms of God's judgment, which has an eschatological conclusion at the, um, at the Battle of Armageddon. On account of this, my loins are filled with trembling. Spasms have grabbed me like the spasms of one giving birth. I'm irritated from hearing. I'm horrified from seeing. And I recall long ago translating these words and thinking this is a heavy time of lexical uh, interest because he uses so many rare words that you have to look them all up. You do your basic Hebrew grammar and vocabulary. You learn all the words in the Bible that happened 50 times or 25 times or more. And then the rest of them you'll look up. Well, Isaiah the poet is making us look up a bunch of words through here. But notice that you don't see what he sees. You see his face, if you will. You don't see the vision of horror that he's describing. You see the face of the one seeing it. It's an interesting poetic device he uses here. So he doesn't tell you the contents of his vision, but it echoes what he said in chapters 13 and 14. My heart wanders about. Horror terrifies me. My desired twilight, it has changed for me to trembling. So I wanted to rest, and I'm in horror. They set the table. They arrange the seats. They eat. They drink. Arise, captains, oil shields. The beginning of prepping the equipment for battle. So somebody is prepping a meal, and somebody's prepping a battle. And so just imagine the screenplay of this. You've got a vision of Belshazzar's uh, palace, the, the king uh, descending from, from Nebuchadnezzar's rule, who in Daniel's day, Daniel's an elderly man, and he's um, forgotten, but, uh, but they have this, this, ba- this banquet, and they, they're drinking and eating off the vessels taken from the temple, and they're having a drinking party, and they're having a good time, and then all of a sudden a hand appears and writes on the wall in Hebrew, Mene Mene Tekelu Farsin. And, well, I don't know what that means. Well, as that party is taking place, the, um, the shields are being oiled, the, the gear is being equipped, we're, uh, we're stretching, our infantry soldiers are stretching out their hamstrings because they're about to do some marching. They're, um, whatever preparations for the ancient composite bow, likely that these uh, famous Medes would carry, they're famous archers, and we still haven't figured out the, the ancient world's composite bow. Uh, the materials used for this, but they had a very powerful bow that was uh, was the envy of the world, um, and in many ways, technologically, historically, still is. Uh, they're getting all their equipment ready and all their gear, oil the shields. So you you have these people that are having a party and don't know they're about to be invaded, and all of them killed, all of them at that banquet killed. Mene, mene, tekelu farce, and you've been weighed, you've been found wanting. We have the Daniel 5 event, and Daniel comes in and says, okay, so what can I do for you, O king? He says, uh, what does that mean? And he tells him, and he says, um, so y'all are all going to die, basically. And, um, and it happens, and then you have the Persians take over. Um, so it's, it's very violent for the, for the uh, national government, but it isn't violent as much for the whole nation, for the city. So the two sides are portrayed here. Somebody's resting and having a party, getting drunk, and somebody's preparing to go and take the city. For thus my master says to me, and this is where it gets interesting and and intriguing and challenging, we're going to start the the, the series of oracles about the watchman, about the man who's the lookout on the wall. My master, Adonai, uh, the word that we usually trans... Yahweh is usually rendered... uh, by Adonai, this word, Adonai. That word Adonai is an actual word in Hebrew, and it means Lord or Master. Yahweh will often be, they'll, they'll say Adonai for Yahweh, and they'll say the Lord. But the word means Master or Lord, the boss. And Isaiah says, my Master says to me, go station the lookout. Hama I just taught Hebrew today. Why can't I pronounce any words? I'm tired. Hamatzapeh is the word from Matzaf to, or Metzef, to, uh, to look out, to be a lookout. Not Shamar, which you might expect for a watchman or someone that's, that's a guard. But it's a lookout. It's somebody that you post 
to provide intelligence to the people that are on the low ground. He's up high and he can see what's coming. And now you've got another sort of image God makes. See, it's all kind of oblique and opaque, but thinking this through, God's going to station a watchman, and as the watchman reports what he sees, it provides the commentary that God's going to make. And the commentary is fallen as Babylon. It's over. See the army coming back. All right, so go station the lookout. Whatever he sees, he will announce. So what God does, tells Isaiah to do, in this vision, he does. He stations a lookout. He saw a column, pairs of horsemen, a, couple of, a column of donkeys, a column of camels. And he listened attentively, very attentively. And he saw what pairs of, some people think the word pairs is, is certain. It means, it means uh, actually teams. So it doesn't just mean two necessarily, but it could mean that. So some have said Medes and Persians, pairs. I'm not sure it's that clear. But you see an array of battle. What are the donkeys and camels doing in battle? Well, we did some digging. That's what archaeologists do. And uh, the, it's known that in the ancient Near East, uh, and especially with the Persians or in this time period, there was the use of camels and donkeys in warfare. The horses don't like the camels. It bothers them. It, it, sets them, it sets them on edge and makes them nervous. They don't respond as well. So one of the great weapons in desert warfare against horse cavalry, which is, as we all know, the greatest form of warfare in all of world history. Um, <laughs> one of the great weapons against that is camel cavalry because it, sets the, it bothers the horses and it, they forget their training and they, they can... They can do all kind, I mean, a horse that's out of control is a really bad thing. Donkeys have a similar effect, especially with their braying. And so these can be used as weapons of war and also certainly as pack animals for the massive trains that a giant army will have, the, the logistics supplies and trains behind them. So he's listening carefully and hearing all this tumult of these, uh, this cavalry column. And then he called out, Upon the watchtower, O master, I'm standing continually by day, and upon my guard post I'm stationed all night. What does that have to do with anything? Well, watchmen, go stand and tell me what you see. When God stations watchmen on walls in the Bible, as we saw last time in Habakkuk, sometimes you have to wait. How long, O Lord, is how Habakkuk begins his request. And this is a man that's tired of being on duty. I've been here for 15, 24 hours how long do I have to stand my guard? How long do I have to wait? And the point, I think, in the, thematically that Isaiah is bringing out here, that God's bringing out through this vision, is that this is going to happen, but it's going to be a, a duration. That's a theme that's going to run through the other oracles in chapter 21 we'll see tonight. Because we're going to hear about Edom and Arabia, um, not just uh, Babylon. So how long do I have to watch for this to happen? So the image is, this is going to happen, but it's going to take some time. And that really fits with what we know of history in terms of the Persians defeating Babylon, 539. How long do I have to watch? Behold, there, finally, after he says, he complains about how long he's on the wall, there it is, there, a chariot column of men, teams of horsemen coming. And he answered, and he said, and I think that he is God, Fallen, fallen is Babel. All the idols for gods are shattered to the ground. We know this is an oracle against Babylon. And I mentioned this last time, but I'll show you what I mean. B-A-B-A for this case, L. Uh, Babel. Oh, no, that's a, that's a segel. Babel. Bavel, actually, is how that would be pronounced in, in this writing, Bavel. This is the name that your Bible is translating into English, Babylon. Because at some point in history, and I'm not sure when, that place that was originally called Babel in Genesis 11, the gate of the gods, or the gate of God, that place, which is the origin of the pagan alternative to the worship of Yahweh, which is, I mean, it's, it's the birthplace of all the alternatives in human history. Uh, Saddam Hussein, in control of this area geographically, uh, was, famously was saying before the 2003 invasion 
of Operation Iraqi Freedom, he was saying this is the cradle of civilization here in Iraq. And, and it may well be, given that, uh, that we got off the boat, all of us, and one family in the mountains of Ararat. But uh, Babel is definitely the cradle of pagan civilization, of man saying no to God and having it his way, which is the very heart of paganism, is that God is not God. I am the decider. I will do what I want. I'll have my way. That's the, that's the soul. That's really the whole thing of wisdom and folly. Is God, will you have your way? Will I trust you? Or will I insist, not, not just disregarding, I'll insist on having my way. And so this is the great summary that God has for, I mean, this is, this is God wins. Fallen, fallen is Babel. Or Babylon, your Bible translates. I just want you to know that whenever you read Babylon in the Old Testament, it's this word, Babel, Babel. Named the gate of the God, the gate of God in Genesis 11. Same place, same spirit, same problem. And it's not hard to see why some theologians through church history have taken this thematic idea of the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of man, Babylon, and and made this um, sort of um, what's the word allegorical view and taking these things out of their actual statement to be some sort of bigger picture uh, allegory. Augustine did this. Um, well, we believe in an actual Babylon. We believe in the actual cradle of paganism and, and rejection of God's authority. And we believe that uh, his, human history ends with uh, a headquarters for God's enemies, man, Antichrist, in Babylon. Um, and some have said, it was popular a couple generations ago maybe, to say Babylon is code language and revelation for Rome and uh, because of the Daniel 2 image and the revived Roman Empire. But I believe the revived Roman Empire will have its headquarters in Babylon because it says it. And, because this, and I think that is the ultimate fulfillment of all that God is going to do in his judgment of Babylon. All the idols of her gods are shattered to the ground. Speaking of shattering, my trampled on ones and the sons of my threshing floor. It's just, a, it's just a, 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 an exclamation. My trampled on ones and the sons of my threshing floor. Son of the thing is somehow closely associated with the thing in Hebrew idiom. And so it's the ones that have been trampled and threshed. The ones that are groaning, the ones that have been hurt by the, the, the boot, if you will, of whoever is running Babylon. My trampled on ones and the sons of my threshing floor. What I have heard from Yahweh of the armies, God of Israel, I've communicated to you is his conclusion. I want you to look at 9 and 10 together. Look at the interesting thematic arrangement. Fallen is Babylon, and all the idols of her gods are shattered to the ground. And then in comparison with the idols that are shattered, God says, my trampled on ones, the sons of my threshing floor. So the comparison is his people to the idols of uh, his enemy. And so Isaiah has perhaps the most difficult to interpret oracle in the Bible, in, in his book. It's short, 10 verses. And I believe this interpretation I've given you reflects everything else we have that we've looked at already in context in chapters 13 and 14. And it is a bookend. It's uh, the Babylon is how both sequences of five against the nations start. But moving on, we have the long night of Edom. And this is a really short one. And the theme of how long, O Lord, continues. The burden of Duma, which if you see, you see D-M, always watch your consonants in Hebrew when it's a Hebrew word. E-D-O-M is, is D-M. It's Aleph, Dalet, Mem. There's no E, but it's D-M. It's, it's a play on words. Duma is probably, it means silence. And it probably is a nickname. It certainly is a nickname for Edom, but it's probably used this way because, um, because of the silence that is thematic here. Burden is uh, oracle. Massah, it's used throughout this to indicate where the, where the, kind of the, the, the breaks are in the oracles. So God's word through Isaiah to Judah regarding Edom. And guess what? Can't rely on them to fight Assyria either when you read it in historical context. To me, one keeps calling from Seir. One of the key places in Edom is Mount Seir. Watchman, what part of the night? So we're still in the watchman theme, the, the, the lookout. What part of the night? So someone from Edom is saying, what time is it? 
Because if you're having a hard night and you're waiting for morning to come for whatever reason, the watchman knows about what hour it is because he's tracking because he's going to be relieved. So you can ask the watchman. He's like the clock. And so this is a clock, clock watcher who's going through a painful evening. He's like, what time is it? And so not just us, them two back then, they would look at their watch and say, how long? And they would say, what time is it? Three minutes since you last asked me. Well, this is still pretty doggone excruciating. And that's the idea in this two-verse little oracle. Watch him in what part of the night. He says it twice. Um, And uh, what from Lila? What from Lila? He says, Ma, in in Hebrew he says, Ma Malila. Shomer Ma Malila. Shomer Ma Malila. And Ma is what? And from, men, and then Lila, the, the word for night. When a beautiful name, um, Lila, means night. Watchman, what part of the night? He asked twice. And the watchman has an answer. And this is the word Shamar for watchman. So I've translated it that way. The watchman saith, morning comes also, morning comes and also night. So it's coming. And so will the night come again? Some have interpreted this very, because you know, this is all you have to go on. We're about to be done with the verse. They say morning means um, there are good things coming and night means bad things coming. But um, what certainly is happening is the watchman just has, it, it keeps going. So the night comes and the morning comes, but you're going to come back into another night. And so um, the answer is um, this is a person in pain in, in Edom saying, I want the pain to end, and how long do I have to wait? And so we're measuring time. If you will inquire, inquire. Keep asking what time it is, and I'll keep telling you, is what he says. And then he says two words, Shavu and Etayu. Okay? Etayu. And Shavu is the imperative for turn around or return or go back. Or, and Athayu is to come, Ata, a word that's pretty rare in Hebrew, but uh, is used a couple times in this, in this passage. Ata, and it is um, also in the imperative. And so return and come is what it says. And what that means, we think, is go back now, but come back later. Come and go, keep asking. You inquire, inquire. And that's the oracle. That is the end of the oracle of Edom. Now, what do you take from that? What's the takeaway, Pastor? You've given us the biblical data, but we need this to help us uh, <laughs> with some application. The theme is under judgment, under the pres- historically the pressure of the Assyrian Empire, there's a long hardship that Edom's going to go through. And they can keep asking the prophet, the watchman on the wall, how long is this going to go? They can go and say, what does Yahweh say about this? And the watchman just says, Keep going. It's, it's, th- it's the third hour. It's the third hour and three minutes. It's the third hour and six minutes. And so the picture that you're left with in two little verses in biblical Hebrew poetry is that Edom is in agony. And they can't get away from it. And it's a durative. It's a duration. And uh, that's a nightmare. And I went out of that nightmare. So let's move on. <laughs> In chapter 21, verses 13 through 17, you have the final of, of chapter 21 before we go to chapter 22, the Valley of Vision, which is about Judah, about Israel, the, the southern kingdom. But this is Arabia. Arabia is soon to go in Isaiah 21. The oracle about Arabia. <clears throat> in the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. So the thickets of Arabia is a reference to a geographic location. And one of the households or one of the tribes within the Arabians, the Ishmaelites, is the people of Dedan. Dedanites are uh, uh, probably nomadic like Bedouins in, of the Arabs. So could we go get the, um, the camel cavalry of the Arabs to help us with the Assyrians? Maybe the historical context. And the answer is no. They're going to get uh, washed out by the Assyrians too. In the thickets of Arabia, you, you, you're going to go have to hide in the wilderness. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tama. These people are known and still known today for their great hospitality, for people that come within their, uh, their tents. Um, and so bring water for the thirsty. Meet the fugitive with bread. Why are there fugitives? Because your military just got defeated by the Assyrians and they're coming back as refugees. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. 
For thus the Lord said to me, in a year as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar, another reference to location in what would be Arabia, the, the, the place where these people live, uh, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. Isaiah chapter 21. It took us from chapters 13 through 20 to get through the five oracles of God against these nations that he mentioned. And now we've just covered three of them as we back back out of that sequence. And so we had Babylon, and now we had um, the, um, the Edomites, the cousins, and then the Ishmaelites in uh, Arabia. So that's Isaiah chapter 21. And if you think that's a challenging passage uh, to understand and, and to interpret and, and apply, I am with you. But the point is, historically, that there is no recourse in these other countries for Israel, for Judah, to, um, to escape God's wrath through the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to do what they're going to do unless God relents. So having read, uh, read and studied what God said he'd do with the Assyrians in this sequence, and then skipping ahead to chapter 36 and 37, did God relent? Did God stop the destruction of Judah at the hands of the Assyrians? And yes, the great miracle of Isaiah chapter 37 was that the, uh, the, Lord, the angel of the Lord killed the entire army, of the Assyrians, 185,000 in Isaiah 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. You couldn't, for all of that time of Isaiah's oracles, you could not go to these other countries for relief, for an alliance. You couldn't join the military and find an answer. What would you have to do? you would have to go back to God who brought the Assyrians in the first place, which brings us kind of full circle to what we talked about as we started. The way the big picture of these oracles about the nations applies to us, since we're not facing an Assyrian attack as a covenant nation with God, the way this applies is that these people had discipline coming to them because they were, would not relate to God as he was calling them to do. The way this relates to us at an individual level, is in Psalm 1 and all the wisdom literature. Some have said that the wisdom statements in Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, these are just the way things are. It's clever, trite statements about the way to think about, you know, good things come to those who wait, that kind of thing. But the truth of all the wisdom in the scriptures is that it begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with loving Him. It begins with an appropriate approach to the Creator and these things are true because he's righteous, because he's interested and active in history. What you want is happiness, but what you get without God, take it to the bank, is misery. I've told you the answers in the back of the math book by saying this. You don't have to work the problem. You don't have to experience a life of misery trying to plug any and everything that you can muster into your life to satisfy you to get what you want. You can take God as true, though every man a liar. You can take God at his word, and what I'm asking you to do is trust him. Trust him, and so love him. And in loving him, go after his word. I'll remind you of the command of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, that he told those reading his words, the diaspora Christians, uh, Jewish Christians that he wrote to, he said that they are commanded to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. They're not commanded to nurse, that's implied. They're commanded to want, to want it. This will not occur to you and me from our experience in our lives. It's not going to occur to us if we look to our relationships, to anything else in life than God himself. My prayer for you is that your life is not an experiment day by day to demonstrate the truth of what I'm saying, but that you would take God's offer of happiness on faith. Happy is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he meditates on God's word, God's instruction day and night. 
and he's planted. He's like a tree planted uh, by living water, by running water. What we want is not human solutions to the problems of this life because the truth is that very often the problems are God saying, come to me and talk to me and trust me. God is disciplining Israel with the Assyrians throughout Isaiah. God is disciplining Israel with the Assyrians. Maybe God is disciplining you with whatever it is. And maybe the discipline is like with Israel. He's saying, come to me. I want you. I want a relationship with you. You won't turn to me. You're stuck with the stupid idolatry. And it's like God is grabbing Israel and and trying to shake the idols out of it. And it'd be nice if he could just pick them up and say, hey, drop these idols. And they did. But the more they hold their idols, the more shaking he does. And pretty much there's nothing left. This says Isaiah 1. There's no place to spank you. There's no place that isn't bruised and, and, uh, and the skin open and not healed up. Because you won't walk with me. The discipline God brings, the discipline God brings to us is because he wants this relationship. So please don't make your life an experiment to demonstrate the application of Isaiah's oracles against the nations. There is no recourse for your problems. There is no recourse for your needs in this life that isn't God's relationship with you. And if you'll establish that relationship, you go after it, all the other things fall into place. You have the security you're after. The love is beyond what you could ever have imagined We know we need love. We know we need to love. We know we're made for love. Let's love in the power of the Holy Spirit. The significance of your life cannot be measured in likes or or views or whatever people are measuring their lives in and the stupid sellout we're doing in our culture today. The significance of your life is in God's opinion. But I can't see God. He doesn't talk to me. And I don't feel like I, you know, really know. Well, you're, you're not in the Word. You're not talking to him. That's what the Bible is. It's him talking to us. We're after money. We're after things, whatever the things are. There is a place for money. There is a place for material possession. There is a place for it. It is actually a much less important thing than we tend to think or feel. There is a place for it. Father, we love you and thank you for the chance, the opportunity you've given us tonight to think about wisdom versus folly. In the history and experience of Israel, there was no recourse to hide from your judgment, your discipline for the nation from the Assyrians. They they were going to be just like all the other nations unless you did a work, unless you saved them. Father, thank you for the the message of your provision and of your care and for the provision you give us of your discipline. Father, uh, don't let us miss the lesson. Help us take our, our attention and our devotion to where it belongs so that we can stop learning the lesson the hard way. We want to learn it the, the easy way and trust you. Father, reward our faith in you with stability. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.